floods and climate change, AUKUS and non-proliferation, Philippines election. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. The floods in southeast Queensland and New South Wales earlier this year were one of the most extreme disasters in Australian history, with the Insurance Council of Australia highlighting the event as the country's costliest flood ever. Dr Robert Glasser speaks to Dr Annika Dean on the links between climate change, flash flooding and other extreme weather events. Hi Annika, welcome to this ASPE podcast to discuss this uh, really interesting publication that you've uh, co-authored at the Climate Council. It's great to be here. So uh, this publication, Uninsurable Nation, is really talking about the impacts climate change will have on hazards and disasters and, and the exposure of Australians and Australian property. Can you tell us a bit about what motivated you first, maybe just to get into this, what motivated you and your colleagues to uh, write this piece at this moment in time? Um, Sure. The Climate Council's mandate is to provide authoritative expert advice to the Australian public on climate change and solutions. And in doing that, we're always trying to localise information about climate change as much as possible, show how it's happening now and how it impacts things that people care about and that people can relate to. So I guess showing how climate change is impacting properties um, and the property sector, people's homes um, and insurance, ability to obtain insurance um, is something that I think people uh, care a lot about, especially given, I think, uh, the experience of many Australians uh, in facing significant extreme weather events in, in recent times over such as the flooding over summer and autumn, flooding last year, the Black summer bushfires in the 2019-2020 summer been a sort of significant onslaught and people the problem of uninsurance and underinsurance in these events has really been highlighted I think so that was sort of one of the reasons that we saw that this particular topic is very um, it's a very topical subject um, yep. and, and it really shows how you know the local impacts of climate change the other motivation I guess was um, that we have a federal election looming and we really wanted to equip the public um, with information about climate risks at the electorate level so that they feel like they have the tools and the information to put greater pressure on their candidates um, in pushing for stronger climate action. And at the same time that candidates um, realise that pushing for stronger climate action is is an important way that they can represent the, the best interests of their constituents. Yeah, I think the timing is very good. I mean, there are a number of major reports released this year, including the UN IPC global scientific assessments, which, as you know, have highlighted that we are, it looks like we're on track for two degrees of warming beyond without more ambitious climate action. And so all these hazards that I guess you're you're highlighting in this report and, and their consequences are going to start increasing pretty rapidly. That's right, yeah. And, and we actually took a snapshot of, of 2030 in the report, so we sort of didn't compare um, different time periods, but a lot of those impacts are, are already locked in for 2030. Um, you know, the, the actions that we, that we take over the coming decade to reduce emissions will have significant impacts in, in determining how th- how bad things get post-2040. But for 2030, you know, we, we know that a lot of these impacts are, are locked in. So, yes, as I guess, as you say, these things are not just hitting close to home, they are hitting homes. Yeah, uh, so, right. yes, people f- will feel these directly and are already. So can you tell us what some of the main findings in the report are? And, and also, 
did you, as you were doing this research, were there any surprises in it for you as you were looking through these issues? Sure. So um, one of the main findings um, was that around one in 25 properties are projected to become effectively insurable or, or reach the sort of category of high risk by 2030. Um, so that's around 3.6% of properties nationally. Um, and I should note what we mean by um, effectively uninsurable because we have a sort of particular definition in the report around that. So it's basically properties that will have annual damage costs from climate change and extreme weather that are 1% or more of the replacement costs of the building in a year. So we we sort of determined that that, um, that basically means that for example, a property that costs um, 314000 to replace would have um, annual insurance premiums um, th that would be expected to become quite unaffordable, around 3140 per year. Um, so that makes insurance quite inaccessible to people. Even if um, insurance providers will be offering pol policies, they may or may not offer, offer policies at that level of um, sort of risk. But even if they do offer them, it will become quite inaccessible. So that's what we mean by effectively uninsurable. Another thing that we did in the report was rank the top 10 um, and the top 20 most at-risk electorates um, in the country. And we found that across the top 10 electorates, the number of effectively uninsurable properties rises to around one in seven. Uh, people can look at the report to see, see what those top 10 electorates are and those top 20 electorates are if, if they want. You know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, where can I move to avoid climate impacts and although I know many of the uh, probably the most effective state, at least in your in your findings, is Queensland, and that's not surprising because it's also the state that gets uh, that is most exposed to hazards in Australia currently. But really, they're in other many other places as well, aren't they? Yeah. Well, perhaps we should have flipped it around the other way and, and said <laughs> what are the safest <laughs> electorates in the country. But um, I, I would have to look up actually because <laughs> I I would have to look up. Um, our, our analysis to, to see what that what that is, but that is actually a, a, a good point that you note that um, that our, we we did see that Queensland five of the most impacted electorates of the top ten are in Queensland, and Queensland um, by twenty thirty will have around six point five percent of properties that would be classed as effectively uninsurable, which is much higher than the other states and territories. The other states and territories um, are around two to three percent, and as I as I mentioned, um, it'll be around three point six percent nationally, but um, Queensland is, is much higher than that. And it wasn't surprising, I guess, but it is um, you know, an important finding, I guess. I, it is very important. And I guess the other, the other thing to point out to our listeners, probably aware, many are aware of this, but this is one hazard that climate change is amplifying. And there are many other, including cyclone risk, which of course will exacerbate the flood risk, but also um, extreme bushfire risk, as we saw, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, Black Summer. And if you actually overlay multiple climate hazard risks, this picture becomes even more worrying. What happens then if a property is soon going to be uninsurable? What are the range of the policy implications if that happens? How do governments respond to that? That's a huge number of homes that will be affected just from the flood risk, let alone the others. But what's the government's role in all of this? Or is this a, something the private sector will somehow address? Yeah, um, I can I can get to that. I just want to um, clarify one thing, um, though, okay. that um, the, the report did look at a, a number of hazards. Um, so it did look at riverine flooding, surface water flooding, bushfires, coastal inundation, 
and, ex- and extreme yeah. winds. Yes, but it doesn't it, it doesn't um, fully capture cyclone risk. It it, it sort of captures um, some aspects of cyclone um, behaviour in the extreme wind um, data. But the flood risk was very very high in determining the number of properties that are at high risk of the, of the high risk properties. So the one in twenty five properties, about eighty percent of that risk was um, due to riverine flooding. So flooding is a really big risk now. A big chunk, big yeah, part of especially that. Especially in 2030. As if you sort of um, move further out, and we, we did actually produce a tool that also looks at how hazards change over time, um, you can see that some of the other hazards um, start to grow, particularly coastal inundation, things like that. But um, river and flooding certainly is a big one in 2030. So, Annika, the report highlights the huge risk across many parts of Australia, maybe especially Queensland, from these multiple hazards climate change is amplifying. So what do we do about this? What's the role of government? I mean, I know one fundamental issue because it applies to all hazards, climate change is amplifying, that if we don't reduce greenhouse gases as rapidly as possible, then all the other measures we take, which I hope you're going to share with us, some that come to mind, are going to be overwhelmed by this, the rapidly increasing scale of these hazards. But, but what beyond greater ambition globally on reducing greenhouse gases should we be doing about this or can we do about this because it sounds as though we're committed to some significant additional warming and therefore hazard increase that's a great question and yes i think treating the root of the problem is is obviously paramount um but in addition to that um i think this this is definitely um, a problem that already exists and that is going to grow into the future and there has been a number of um you know, inquiries and, and initiatives um, to look at the affordability of insurance. Um, for example, um, over the years, there was a recent one, that the Australian Competi- Competition and Consumer Commission um, that looked in 2019 and made some recommendations. The government's response um, to this increasing risk has been to establish a reinsurance pool for cyclone and flood risk in, the, in Northern Australia. And that's backed by a $10 billion annually reinstated Commonwealth guarantee and I guess there's significant issues um, with this approach because whilst it may reduce premiums in the short term, it is unlikely to, well, it, it doesn't actually remove the risks that people face and, and it, it kind of, it can sort of distort, I guess, the, the price signal that insurance um, can send, send in, in, you know, in showing that people are, facing um, really risky situations. So I think that to, to really sustainably reduce insurance premiums um, and to also address the safety issue that people are, are living in these risky locations, I think there's a number of things that could be done. I think improving building standards and compliance is a really, really important one and making that sort of tailored to the specific hazards that people are facing. Also, uh, making sure that new buildings aren't built in areas that are really prone to hazards that are occurring now and that will increase, um, such as riverine flooding in particular, making sure that people aren't building in flood plains. Also, um, you know, in, in low-lying coastal areas, um, making sure that, that the future risks of climate change are fully um, incorporated and considered in, in land use planning. I think, in, in general, greater investments in resilience, um, making sure that those um, are informed by a thorough um, risk analysis and vulnerability sort of assessment, potentially flood levies in certain situations, but, you know, studies need to be done into, into the appropriateness of those. 
Um, there's also a lot that can be done in terms of introducing resilience measures to existing existing buildings. So, for example, cyclone resilience measures can, can go a long way to protecting homes, um, re-roofing homes that were built prior to um, cyclone you know, standards, making sure that roofs are strong enough, putting cyclone shutters on, on windows, that type of thing. And also, you know, for homes that are really at risk of being affected by bushfires, you know, there's a whole range of ways that homes can be made more resilient. There is also an issue of, um, I, I think this has been raised by insurance companies um, frequently, but perhaps having having the state and territory levies on insurance premiums is part of the reason for rising costs. So the, the rising risk from climate change is part of the risk, but um, adding further costs onto that, you know, doesn't necessarily help things. And I think also, you know, in rebuilding after disasters, it's important to, to make sure that people are building back better, but also that people... In some situations, I think that there does have to be a conversation about whether, you know, some locations are appropriate to have people living in them and building back at all. And, and you know, there needs to be a, a, a national conversation about that, I guess, and and perhaps incentives for people to, to relocate to less, less risky areas. Yep, I bet I notice uh, some good examples of that uh, in that have been reinforced in the most recent flooding on the East Coast. There was Grantham in Queensland, which flooded over a decade ago, very serious flooding. And the town was actually, most of the town was actually relocated. There was a land swap to a higher elevation. And all the homes that were moved were high and dry during these most recent floods. The homes that didn't move were inundated yet again. So I think that's a really good point, Monica, about... You know the other um, the other thing I'm glad you commented on the this the risk of government kind of stepping into the market to make insurance affordable because I know in the case of the U.S. there's a national flood ins- insurance scheme that is virtually bankrupt and in many cases it's rebuilt homes in exactly the same places and without any improvements without any betterment. There's one home I know that has been cited that. Um, They've rebuilt something like four or five times at a cost of almost a million dollars. The value of the home is like $40,000. And the moral hazard issues, if it's always cost-free to be living in places, then people don't make the changes they need to make to improve, uh, to reduce their their vulnerability and exposure to hazards. Exactly. But, I think it's very important that we don't repeat those those mistakes that have been made, I think, in that in that scheme. And I think that they're, they're also revising that, that scheme or they've, they've recently revised it because it's, it, as you say, it's had massive problems. So this is a really important report at, at a critical moment. Uh, if, you know, if, if I'm buying a house, I would love to know, number one, am I in a hazard zone, whether it's extreme bushfire or flood zone or cyclone winds uh, risk? I would also want to be sure that if I were in there, the home was as resilient as possible. In effect, will I be able to qualify for a loan in future from a bank if it's not, if I am living in these places? So at, at a minimum, I, th- I think it's really important. Your report highlights how important it is for the public to be aware of the risks in our daily lives and uh, and also to be politically active and engaging on this issue, which is so critical to our future, the changing climate. So, so Annika, much. thank you. Yes. And there is a tool as well that can be found on the on the Climate Council's website, the Climate Risk Map, where it's a lot more interactive. You can actually sort of go down to the suburb level and look at local government um, level and um, sort of see the, the risks in a sort of more, more localised way. Um, so I looked. I, I looked at Canberra and my own house, and I'm outside of the extreme bushfire hazard. But I'm surprised there's some suburbs I didn't think were 
at extreme risk that are actually pretty high risk in Canberra as well. Of course, we've had very bad fires here in recent times. But anyway, thank you very much to you, your co-authors, and to the Climate Council for raising this really critical issue at this important moment. So thanks thank for joining thanks us for here today. In September last year, the Australian government announced it would enter into a trilateral security partnership with the United States and United Kingdom, AUKUS. As part of that partnership, Australia is set to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. Anastasia Kapetis is joined by John Carlson for a conversation on nuclear non-proliferation and whether the submarines can be safeguarded. Welcome, John Carlson. Really glad that you're with us today to talk about all the ramifications of AUKUS submarines, proliferation, high-enriched uranium. So there's been a lot of debate in in the non-proliferation world, but also out there in in commentary about Australia's proposed submarines under the AUKUS deal, and we don't know exactly what they'll be, but the weight of of, uh, opinion is that there'll be some version of the US Virginia class, which runs on Mm weapon-grade, highly-enriched uranium. So the question um, that is being asked is, can these submarines be safeguarded? Do they need to be safeguarded? Uh, when the deal was first announced, the International Atomic Energy Agency head, Rafael Grossi, uh, said, look, this is going to be difficult. We don't know how um, these submarines will be safeguarded. China's declared that these naval reactors can't be safeguarded under the current regime. And Peter Harcher, who's the political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, recently had a story uh, about the genesis of AUKUS, and he reported that the Biden administration was very concerned about the non-proliferation aspects of the Orca submarine deal. But administration experts on the non- nuclear non-proliferation treaty said that as long as the reactors uh, were sealed before they came to Australia, sealed in the US, sealed throughout their lives so that Australia had no access to the reactors in their submarines and then removed by the US at the, at the end of their very long 30-year life, uh, that it would not breach the treaty. Does this then mean that no safeguards are necessary because the US is an NPT nuclear weapon state? Well, thank you, Anastasia. You've certainly raised a wide range of issues. So let me start by quickly mapping out the context. All nuclear-powered submarines today are operated by nuclear weapon states or India, which is a nuclear-armed state rather than a recognised weapon state. And for those states, safeguards are not required, uh, and therefore the issue of how to safeguard submarines has not uh, had to be addressed in a, in a practical sense. Australia is a non-weapon state, and under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, we're prohibited from making nuclear weapons, and we're required to accept IAEA safeguards on all our nuclear material to verify that we're meeting that obligation. However, when the NPT was negotiated, a number of countries raised the possibility of having nuclear-propelled submarines in the future. So a kind of gap was left in the NPT, unintentionally, I think. The obligation to accept safeguards applies to to nuclear material that's in peaceful activities, and the the starting assumption is a non-weapon state should only have peaceful activities. But... Obviously, submarines are military activities, not peaceful. So there's a kind of gap in the NPT safeguards provisions. The the fundamental requirement of the NPT, that non-weapon states don't produce nuclear weapons, 
definitely applies, but the obligation to accept safeguards is fuzzy. What the standard safeguards agreements under the NPT say is that if a state wishes to use nuclear material in non-prescribed military activities, in other words, military activities that are not nuclear weapons, mm. uh, then the, the standard safeguards under the agreement do not apply, but the state is to conclude arrangements with the IAEA to provide uh, information to the agency on how the material is being used uh, and to ensure that the material is brought under safeguards as soon as it stops being used for the activity in question, namely, namely naval propulsion. Uh, now, that mechanism has not been put to the test yet because so far no non-nuclear weapon states have started operating nuclear-powered submarines. Canada looked at this in the 1980s, uh, so these questions then started to be debated about what would we do about nuclear material in submarine reactors, uh, but in the end Canada decided not to proceed with its program. More recently, Brazil has started uh, a nuclear-propelled submarine program. It has actually built its own reactor for submarines, which is being operated through a testing program at the moment onshore, so the reactor is installed in a building, and Brazil is looking at the design of the submarines that this reactor would be fitted to. Uh, we don't expect to see any of those if Brazil proceeds until um, the 2030s. So now Australia has come along. It's not clear who's going to have nuclear-powered submarines first, Australia or Brazil, but the proposals in each case are quite different. What's being proposed in our case, um, which you've uh, alluded to uh, from what your Washington comments, is that uh, we would acquire submarines which would be fitted with fuel by the supplier and the reactor would be sealed inside the submarine and the reactor would not need to be accessed and in fact could not be accessed for the 30-year life of the submarine. The submarine will have a, a lifetime core of fuel and Australia will operate the submarine and then it would be returned to the supplier with the fuel still on board. So this is a different situation to Brazil, which has established an enrichment, a uranium enrichment program and will be producing its own fuel. Uh, and the safeguards issues are rather different there. I'll expand on that. The, fu the fundamental obligation for Australia is to be able to demonstrate that we are not diverting nuclear material for nuclear weapons. So when we get a submarine and it has high enriched uranium fuel on board, standard safeguards can't apply uh, for two reasons, and this, and this applies to Brazil as well, possibly. Uh, it applies to military activities. There are two reasons why standard safeguards can't apply. Uh, one is uh, military confidentiality of, of technology. So submarine designers don't want the details of their design, the reactor design, the, uh, the fuel design, the performance. They don't, th these are military secrets. They don't want international inspectors looking at all of that. And the IEA recognises that that's a legitimate concern. Uh, the second issue is standard safeguards apply on a regular 
basis, a routine basis, so that uh, for different classes of nuclear material, there are different periods set during which inspections must take place. This is fine for a land-based reactor, but if the reactor is at sea uh, in, a, in a vessel, then there is no guarantee that it would be available for inspection at the assigned time. So if there's, for instance, uh, for high-enriched uranium, which we'll have, once the fuel has started to be used, it's, it's described as irradiated, HEU, IA inspections apply on a three-monthly basis, but we couldn't guarantee that the submarine would be in port and ready to accept inspectors every three months. Uh, The way military programs work, uh, that could be quite unpredictable. So for these reasons, standard safeguards can't apply, but Australia has an obligation to demonstrate to the international community that we haven't simply diverted the fuel, removed the fuel from the submarines and used it to produce nuclear weapons. And this is why we need to develop with our um, supplier, with the supplier, with the US or the UK and the IAEA, a verification arrangement. It wouldn't be standard safeguards, but it would be sufficient to demonstrate to the international community in a credible way that the fuel is still in the submarines at any point in time and Australia has not diverted the fuel to make weapons. So can I just ask, what might this look like in practice? There are a number of ways of doing it. Uh, I think the key thing for the Australian proposal, the AUKUS proposal, is that the fuel will not be accessible. In, in a standard reactor situation, the fuel can be accessed at any time by opening the top of the reactor. And this is how refuelling is carried out, for instance. But when refuelling is being carried out, it's possible to remove fuel or you could use the reactor to irradiate additional material, not in the form of fuel elements, but as target material, which could then be removed um, and plutonium extracted. Um, In our case, there will not be access hatches to the reactor. The reactor will be made as a sealed unit. It'll be built into the hull of the submarine. There will not be access hatches. So the only way we could access that fuel would be by cutting open the hull of the submarine, which would be a major operation. It disables the submarine. It then can't be used. So that would be obvious if we have submarines around ports with holes (laughs) in the top and they're not going anywhere. That would be a dead giveaway. So a very simple verification approach would be to verify every time the submarine is available in port, to verify that the top has not been cut open, the hull Mm -hmm. has not been cut open. And this can be done by uh, ultrasonic techniques, for instance. It's possible to, to demonstrate that the, the hull has not been opened. And the only additional thing that would need to be done would be to be able to uniquely identify every submarine. Uh, and that can be done, th- again, through ultrasonics, looking at the signature of particular worlds. Every, every world in, in any kind of object, every world if it's examined in great detail ultrasonically, has its own signature like a fingerprint. Uh, so it would be easy to set up a way to demonstrate that every time you present it with submarine number 23, it really is submarine 23. It's not some other submarine that's gone out through the heads and the sailors have quickly got out their spray cans 
and turn it into, into something else. So, uh, <laughs> well, because an obvious diversion scenario is that you just keep bringing back the same submarine 23, but it's actually, <laughs> um, you're actually ripping the fuel out of all the other submarines. So, you need to be able to identify each submarine, you need to be able to uh, demonstrate that the hull is intact, and obviously that the submarine is operating. Basically, the verification problems are fairly easy. Can I just ask one scenario that's been put out there is what happens if there is an accident with the reactor or the reactor begins to malfunction um, and it's not close to the US at the time and it has to come back to an Australian or another port and somehow the reactor has to be opened and, and fixed. Is that, is that, a, is that a, any kind of realistic scenario? It's a possible scenario <clears throat> um, and the obvious issue there is Australia wouldn't be equipped to do that operation because in the normal course we wouldn't need to. So we would have to be able to cut the submarine open and we would need all the uh, equipment, remote, remote handling equipment and so on, radiation shielding, to be able to access the fuel. Uh, we'd obviously need help from the US or the UK to do all of that. And uh, if we didn't have the equipment, they would have to bring it with them. Uh, so. The preference, if we had any kind of technical problem, would be to go to a US port, uh, even if it meant either towing the submarine or running it on auxiliary power. And uh, the submarines will be fitted with um, diesel-electric auxiliary power systems so that they could limp to a port uh, at low speed. They wouldn't be as stranded. Um, but that's certainly the scenario where we could get access to fuel, and that's why people have raised it, that they could... You know, that someone could speculate, we could claim the reactor needed urgent attention and this would be actually a way that we would get our hands on the fuel. Well, to do that, as I've just discussed, we would need a lot of equipment, specialised equipment, to be able to access the fuel safely because it would be extremely dangerous to people, highly radioactive. On top of that, uh, to use the fuel for nuclear weapons... We would need to reprocess it because uh, there will be fission products mixed in with the fuel, um, so it would be t totally unsuitable as it is for weapons use without going through a reprocessing operation, uh, and we would need um, other technologies for um, turning the fuel into a metallic form to make um, warhead components and so on. So a major uh, exercise, uh, part of the safeguards approach uh, by the IAEA would be not only looking at the submarines but also checking whether Australia has these other technologies. Do we have uh, shield, shielded containers that could be used for uh, unloading fuel from a reactor? Do we have large-scale hot cells that could be used for reprocessing operations? Uh, do we have the specialised remote handling equipment to be able to handle highly radioactive material safely? This is all part of the safeguards approach and uh, Australia has made it clear to the IEA uh, that we would provide all the access the IEA needs around Australia to be able to satisfy itself that we don't have those kinds of activities um, that we have in preparation for <laughs> stealing the fuel. Um, and, in fact, this is one of the issues with Brazil. An instrument, legal instrument called the Additional Protocol, Australia was the first country to conclude one of these, uh, I was one of the main negotiators uh, uh, in the international negotiations for establishing the additional protocol and what the additional protocol does is give the safeguards inspectors 
substantially greater authority than they had previously for investigating activities in a country that could be related to nuclear programs. And Brazil, to date, has refused to conclude an additional protocol, uh, and Australia is certainly taking a very strong position that any country that wants to run a naval nuclear propulsion program must have the additional protocol because it's not simply a question of looking at the fuel on the subs, but all the activities either side of that. Uh, in Brazil's case, they're going to be um, enriching uranium and fabricating fuel. They'll be doing regular refuelling operations and the IEA needs to be sure that there are no undeclared activities associated with this where material could be being removed from the naval fuel cycle and going into a weapons program. Okay, so what you're saying here is that Australia is going to have a sealed system, uh, but Brazil has its own fuel cycle, so that That's just correct. makes everything much more complicated That's from right. a safeguard point of and view. And that would also be the issue with <laughs> other countries that are looking at um, submarine programs like uh, Iran uh, claims. A, it needs uh, nuclear submarines, and B, it needs highly enriched uranium fuel from Australia's point of view is is totally unacceptable because if they're producing HEU, uh, they have the possibility of producing it secretly in a parallel program for producing weapons. In Australia's case, we won't be enriching anything. Uh, the only HEU we'll have will be the, f the fuel that's in the subs, uh, so we don't have the technical capabilities to produce material in secret. So just, just to finish with, um, how do you think the politics of all this is going at the IAEA for Australia? Uh, and also there's an NPT review conference later on this year. Might these issues be brought up then? China has, has released a non-paper uh, indicating that it wants to bring up these issues there. Do you think the international community in the IAEA will be okay with this kind of carve-out for Australia? Uh, the short answer is yes, but... Uh, I think it needs to be handled very carefully. Uh, clearly, up till now, there's been considerable tension between China and Australia, and China is particularly agitated about this project. What we need is to have the time to approach things in a calm and a technical way, rather than political, uh, and to talk through the legitimate concerns about how to verify that Australia or whichever country it is with nuclear-powered submarines is not diverting nuclear material to weapons. As we've discussed, uh, this can be readily done. It'll be innovative. It's not standard safeguards. It's something else. But it can be done convincingly. It's a technical issue, not a political issue, and it needs to be handled calmly and steadily in the IAEA. And um, the Director-General, uh, Rafael Grossi, uh, is exactly the person to do that. He's um, very aware of all these issues and he will handle them very carefully. So he's a steady as, hand. As will, <laughs> as will Australia. We're fully aware that what we do could establish precedents for others and we want to make sure that the precedent we establish is a very high level that, that doesn't provide an opening for others to exploit an apparent loophole in the safeguard system. John Carlson, I'm... Afraid we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for coming on and explaining the technical ins and outs of safeguarding our potential nuclear power submarines. Pleasure. Following a landslide victory, 
Mr. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has been elected as the next president of the Philippines. Dr. David Angle speaks to Dr. Yusuke Takagi about the implications of his election for the Quad countries, the bilateral relationship between the US and the Philippines, and what China's growing regional influence means for Manila. Yusuke, great to have you at the podcast. You're a bona fide expert on Philippine affairs. The victory of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bongbong, was quite a momentous event. It was an overwhelming victory. For many of us old enough to remember his father, some part of his father's reign, it came as something of, I suppose, a surprise to many of us who aren't as familiar with Philippine affairs as as you are. And then on top of that, of course, uh, the vice president election saw uh, an overwhelming victory independently of uh, the current president, Rodrigo Duterte's daughter as vice president. Now, for many of us, as I say, not familiar with uh, Philippine affairs, it comes across as somewhat strange. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about you know, what Marcos's overwhelming win says about democracy and society in the Philippines. Thank you very much for the question. First of all, thank you very much for your kind invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. And about uh, Marcos' victory, I'd like to point out three things. One is about factors which allow Marcos to come back to the power. The first point is maybe the kind of a so-called solid North uh, narrative, I mean, the ethnic group living in the northern part of the Philippines, but they compose only a less than 10% of Filipino population, so it doesn't explain all. So to add more, we have to think about two other things, which we have, uh, other people have already mentioned. But the second point is uh, the generation or generational change because the average age of the Philippine population now is 24. And if you think about the People Power Revolution in 1986, then the majority of the people, I mean, the voters haven't been born yet. So that this is another thing that we have to think about to rise about Marcos because those who have already, I mean, who have remembered well about uh, what uh, uh, dictator Marcos did to the Philippines, it may be a surprise. But for those who are not so familiar with this kind of history, then uh, it's not that bigger surprise. But to me, the most important factor we have to think about is the support of the Duterte administration itself, because Duterte joined the Marcos campaign and which boost the Marcos, uh, Marcos candidacy, in my view. So we have to think about three points. One is uh, uh, ethnic vote from Ilocano people, and then the second is a youth vote, and the third is a, a very uh, popular uh, Duterte administration, and to me, the third one is uh, crucial to understand the kind of return of the Marcoses to the Maracanian Palace. You mentioned the Duterte administration that the Marcos administration is going to replace. How different will the new administration be from, from the Duterte administration, particularly on issues like uh, economic policy, human rights, and so forth? How different a president will Marcos himself be from uh, Rodrigo Duterte? Yeah, when it comes to the difference and then maybe the changes and continuity, I would like to highlight one perspective which many people do not appreciate. When you think about the Philippine politics, many people have complained that uh, the political parties are coming and going and the politicians are coming and going within the party system. In other words, there's no program-oriented party system in the Philippines. That's a kind of the view many people have on the Philippine politics and actually it's true. And because of that, uh, instead of talking about party politics, people move to the other side of the spectrum, which is a personality politics. In the personality politics, individual matters. So when you talk about Marcos administration, we 
tend to focus on the President Marcos or Pre Vice President Sara as an individual player in politics. But in between party politics and the personality politics, I'd like to highlight the kind of coalition politics as the third arena of Philippine politics. In this coalition politics, we don't have program-oriented party, but uh, the individual cannot dominate everything. In coalition politics, we have to pay much attention to the varieties of interest in society. And when you think about coalition politics, I mean, to understand coalition politics, we have to think about the people surrounding the President-elect Marcos. And interestingly, yesterday, President Marcos declared that he would nominate R.C. Barisakan as his NEDA secretary. NEDA stands for National Economic and Development Authority, the chief of a kind of economic management team. And R.C. Barisakan, uh, surprisingly uh, or interestingly, served for the same post under no other than Benigno Aquino administration. Yeah. So this Barisakan shows a kind of a continuity of economic policy management. And one more example I would like to highlight about kind of continuity under coming Marcos administration is defense portfolio, of which we don't know who will be. But uh, one thing we know is that Sara Duterte once liked to be appointed as a defense secretary, but publicly uh, it was declined. And then Marcos said that uh, Sara would be the education secretary. So it means uh, Marcos doesn't want to give this portfolio to Sara Duterte, who should be a very important partner with his administration. And when it comes to the defense portfolio, which is quite important to understand the stability of administration, and when you check the defense portfolio under Duterte administration or Akin, I mean Benigno Aquino administration, ex-generals served for that position, it means that the defense department may reflect the voice of the military establishment, which means the security policy. And uh, probably we talk about foreign policy later on, but uh, as long as the military establishment are in that position, we can expect kind of continuity of the security policy, especially Philippine-US uh, relations. So considering coalition that Duterte may make, or um, he is actually making now, uh, we can see some uh, continuity of uh, from the Duterte administration. Well, that's a good segue, I think, to uh, the whole issue of where the Philippines is going to position itself vis-a-vis -vis China in the first instance, and we can talk about the United States after that. Um, one noteworthy element of Duterte's administration, particularly for, of Duterte himself, was his overly nationalist and somewhat anti-US posture, which translated into a drift in his, on his part personally towards China. And there were material benefits, no doubt, that he was seeking to to take advantage of with respect to that, though they didn't necessarily come his way. Uh, but the administration itself seemed to drift back towards the United States the longer it was in power. So where, how do you see the Marcus administration's approach to, to China developing? Yeah, maybe I can uh, use the example, uh, use the framework of coalition politics here again, because to me, Philippine foreign relations are shaped by three major actors. One is President Himo herself, and uh, second is the uh, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs, and the third is the military in general. In general, mean I include the Department of National Defense and also Philippine Coast Guard. So these three actors have different ideas and different policy orientation to some extent. And these, these three actors are working 
uh, sometimes together and sometimes in a different way. And this explains the Philippine foreign relations. That's my take. Of course, many people say that, oh, but the president is a president. And when you think about the power of the president, no one can neglect the voice of the president. It's true. But president is very busy. They have to take care of domestic issue, uh, social issue, economic issue, the varieties of issue coming president has to think about, has to think about. Therefore, there are room for maneuver for the uh, professional diplomats and also the military people. And when it comes to the Department of Foreign Affairs, dedicated a lot to promote rule-based kind of governance in terms of South China Sea. Like, uh, as we may all know, that the Philippine government brought a case to the uh, Court of Arbitration in 2013, and then they uh, actually won the kind of arbitration award in 2016. And despite pro-China stance by president, DFA maintained the kind of award. And then once, for instance, in 2019, in my view, DFA succeeded in convincing President Duterte to say that uh, UNCROS and also the arbitration award is the basis of their policy toward uh, South China Sea issue. So in a sense, the second layer of the foreign relations of the Philippines are still here. And then I don't think Marcos uh, will change this. And then the third one is more important about the military. Military establishment is there, and uh, there's no benefits for the Marcos to, to you know, destroy this kind of foundation because military is quite important, not only for security of the, of the country, but also for the security of his administration. So if he gets closer to China at the sacrifice of close relation with the military, Marcos uh, will be in trouble. And there's no reason for Marcos to get closer to China at the sacrifice of the, his relationship with military establishment, which has strong ties with the United States. So concerning three actors in foreign relations with the Philippines, I don't think Marcos will change the course drastically from the uh, previous uh, administration. But it seems also that the popular opinion in the Miller Street, for want of a better phrase, is quite anti-China because of what's been going on in the South China Sea. It doesn't seem to be, well, the surveys seem to suggest that China is distrusted. The United States, Japan and others, far less so. So, you know, another reason I would imagine, but I'm interested in your thoughts, uh, for why Marcos wouldn't see it as politically advantageous to go towards China if it's a very unpopular thing to do. Yeah, uh, that's right. But uh, the purpose to get closer to China is not to be friendly to the Chinese people or people-to-people -people relation, but rather it's more realistic one, or more business-like one. Uh, as a president of the country uh, which needs infrastructure investment, uh, president uh, would like to go to China and get the pledge about investment and uh, maybe arguably the aid from China. That kind of business uh, deal can be made with China. And when you think about the kind of at least number of the pledge, it's quite huge. And there's no reason for him to neglect it. But uh, of course, as you, you are absolutely right to think about the mindset of the Filipino people in general. So. Even though uh, president needs to have kind of economic uh, gains from from China, uh, he has to think about uh, kind of backlash in domestic front. Well, very quickly on that subject, the U.S. We've seen the U.S. ASEAN summit. We've now seen at the moment uh, President Biden in, in Tokyo, uh, the Quad meeting. But Anthony Albanese is up there for Australia with Modi as well as. As, as the leaders of Japan and the, and the United States together. So how do you see the US 
and everything that's happening on the quad front as well as with regard to the summit. How is that playing out, do you think, in Manila and particularly with regard to the Marcos administration? Yeah, concerning, as I said, two-third of the two-third of the uh, foreign relations actors in Philippines, uh, Philippine-US relation will not have any problem, especially the cause of kind of the drift under Duterte administration will go. The cause of drift is the uh, president himself, I mean, President Duterte's anti-American sentiment, but he will go and then uh, Marcos will come. And there's no good reason for Marcos to take a hostile attitude toward the Americans. So maybe the Philippine-US relation will go back to the kind of normal track to have a steady relationship. Finally, your thoughts on where Japan fits into this picture? We just mentioned the Quad, of course, but more generally, Japan has very direct bilateral interests, security as well as economic interests in the Philippines. How do you see Philippine and J Japanese relations unfolding in, under Marcos? Oh, yeah, fortunately, Philippine-Japan relation is quite stable. And regardless, you have anti-American president or maybe pro-China president. It doesn't matter for Japan-Philippine relations. Uh, so far, we, uh, the Japan and the Philippines, or Tokyo and Manila, has a very good relations at the government level, but also business level and societal level. I I do uh, point out one more thing that about the uh, internationalization of Japanese society depends on actually Filipino people a lot because the fourth or third largest depends on the year, but the third or fourth largest uh, international population in this country are Filipinos. So when you talk about the internationalization of Japan, reality is that we have so many Filipinos and we have to uh, mingle with these people and working together, living together, go to school together. So the Philippines is a kind of frontline for Japan to be internationalized. And this is one the third layer I'd like to add, like government level, business level, and societal level. And at all level, of course, we have some problems, but there's no big issue which may destroy two-country relations. Well, Yusuke, thank you again so much for participating in this and for giving us the benefit of your very good insights into the Philippines, uh, your knowledge of the place. Thanks again. Thank you very much, David. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre, and Dr. Annika Dean, Senior Researcher at the Climate Council, Anastasia Capetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and John Carlson, former Director General of the Australian Safeguards and Non-Proliferation Office, Dr. David Angle, Head of ASPE's Indonesia Program, and Dr. Yasuki Takagi, Associate Professor at the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.